Today we are continuing our series. We just started last week uh, in the book of Isaiah. Our, our series called Hope Has a Name. We're discovering what the name of this hope is. I, I'm so glad to see my friend Daniel here. Daniel, good to see you this morning. Uh, amen. Praise God. If you're kind of new to Generations, you may not know this is our worship leader right here. And can we just... I hope you don't mind. Can we just stretch our hands toward him? He's in the fight of his life right now, I don't mind saying. And I want to pray for you right now, Daniel. In the name of Jesus, I thank you, Father, for my brother, my friend. Lord, I thank you, Lord God. You know the struggle he's going through. You know the fight that he is in. And his faith is in you, Lord God. And we join our faith with Daniel right now. We thank you for healing in his body. We thank you for that, Father God. Just fill him, Lord God, from head to toe with that divine healing, Lord God, with your peace, with your joy, with your faith. I thank you, Lord, for it. And I thank you, Lord, we look forward to the day he is back up here leading us in celebration of your name. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Keep Daniel in your prayers. Praise the Lord. All right. All right. So where was we? Where was we? We? I just make up grammar as we go along. I was actually an English major. Could you believe that? Uh, yeah, well, here we go. Here we go. You're in Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, you can be there, or your Bible app, or whatever you're using, Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years before Jesus. So you do your math, 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah was living during this time of incredible darkness, impending doom that was permeating the tiny, tiny nation of Judah. And in the middle of all that, he delivers these words in chapter 9 verse 6 for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called here we go wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end this messiah he's talking about will reign on david's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the lord almighty will accomplish this these words of isaiah tell of a coming messiah and when it gets christmas time and advent time this is often a scripture we pull out because we know we know this is talking about jesus here the, the baby in the manger this is it but to the Jews first hearing this, this Messiah figure would be somebody, they would assume this would be somebody called by God and equipped by God to rise up and rescue the Hebrew people, restore them to greatness among their enemies. And in fact, as we talked about last week, uh, Bible scholars believe it's likely that the person Isaiah himself may have thought God was speaking of through this prophecy was uh, a child king at the, at the time by the name of Hezekiah. Who had just been born and they were really hoping they had all their eggs in this hezekiah basket they were hoping that he would right all the wrongs and be the king that they prayed for that would deliver the nation of judah from the big bad assyrian empire that was knocking on the doorstep little did they know little did they know the messiah that isaiah spoke of would not be hezekiah and in fact that this messiah wouldn't arrive for another 700 years and little did they know that this messiah would not just come to save the tiny nation of Judah. He's on a big, grander scale than that. He would come to save the entire human race. That couldn't even enter into their, their mind, right? Little did they know this Messiah would not come to just set up another earthly kingdom and another earthly empire in the fashion of all the other kingdoms and empires. But this 
kingdom would be one in which every man, every woman, every child would be invited to join, and not only join, but represent as ambassadors to the world, a kingdom that would rule and reign, not within just normal little geographical little borders, but this kingdom would come and rule and reign in men's hearts. And little did they know that this Messiah would not just be sent by God, he would not just be empowered by God and anointed by God, which is what Messiah means, anointed one. This Messiah, this King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would be the Son of God, the Word made flesh, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. Little did they know that. However, we can say today, looking back, you know, we got hindsight, so it's easy for us. We could say there, there were clues all along that uh, this Messiah would be different than whatever they were expecting. Because Isaiah predicts that the Messiah would be known by four names, which speak of something far more majestic than just a merely earthly king, right? Last week, we looked at the first of these names, Wonderful Counselor. We spoke uh, about the shocking, wonder-producing wisdom that that comes from Jesus. This morning, we move from the theme of wisdom to the theme of power with the second name that Isaiah mentions here, and that is Mighty God. Mighty God. Now, some of your wheels are turning here. I, can, I know some of you are sharp-minded folks. You're clever, and you're picking up on something right now. You might be wondering, how on earth could Isaiah... And the Jewish people possibly have thought this was talking about an earthly king like Hezekiah, when right there, the second name he says is Mighty God. Anybody think that? Anybody that crossed your mind? Nobody. Okay. All right. Mel did. Yeah, she's very clever, Mel. Well, here's the deal. It turns out Hebrew names are, are unique, right? In that they actually mean something. When you named your baby, it meant something. For instance, that's not always the case today. Some of your names might mean something. That's great. But my name is Scott, which means from Scotland. I'm not from Scotland, turns out. Never been to Scotland. My parents have never been to Scotland. Um, and uh, another meaning of my name, it's Gaelic for a painted warrior. And I can assure you, when I was born, my 21-year-old father did not hold me to the sky and say, hey, the lad is a painted warrior. He's going to grow up because he looks like one now. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't do any of that. In fact, if you ask him, he's told me the story. When I was born, he thought I looked like a rat. <laughs> and he asked the doctor, oh, well, I, I, he asked his, well, I remember him asking my grandma, are they supposed to look like this? And she assured him, yes. <laughs> yeah. That was as good. I haven't improved much since, I think. Um, so Hebrew, but Hebrew names are different. Hebrew names are different. They're not just named because something sounded good. Um, Hebrew names were, they always had a meaning. And usually the meaning was either uh, a hope of what the child would become when they grew up. Like you want to be a successful businessman. You would name them successful businessman or something like that. Um, or the names would be a declaration of praise. 
And so this name, El Gibor, which, by the way, when I was a kid, I thought all of these names, El Gibor, El Shaddai, were Spanish, and they meant the Gibor. Um, yes, but apparently it doesn't. El is the Hebrew word for God. It's the generic word for God in Hebrew, kind of like we would use the word God. So in Israel, I might say my El is better than your El, right? So El Gibor can mean God is mighty, or it can mean the God who is mighty, the mighty God itself. Um, the, that L is the same L at the end of the word Israel, uh, which means uh, struggles with God or God fights. Anyway, interesting to me if you're a nerd. So uh, another example, uh, the prophet Elijah the prophet Elijah. His name literally means God is Yahweh. Elijah, El, God, a Jah, which is a short form of Yahweh. So Elijah. Now, Elijah wasn't walking around. People wouldn't have assumed that Elijah was saying, I'm the God who is Yahweh. He was, declar- he was declaring that fact, that praise, that he's the God. God is the God of Yahweh. He is Yahweh. So, So Isaiah says, he shall be called the God who is mighty or God is mighty. And the people would have assumed when Isaiah said, he shall be called mighty God. The people would have assumed this would be a declaration of praise to the God who is mighty. Um, So you can see, you can imagine how exciting it would be to those early Christians in that very first century, those early Christians who were flipping back through the, the Jewish writings, they're flipping back through the prophecies. And they would have said, ah, this 700-year-old prophecy they come across. And they said, oh, 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 Isaiah was being even more literal than even Isaiah probably realized he was being. Isaiah thought this person would be named as a declaration of the mighty God. This person actually is the mighty God, and all kinds of bells would have went off, and that was really cool. And Jesus would have definitely fit that description. Jesus fits that description like no wonder. When Jesus taught the scriptures, we're told that he taught with such authority and power that it would even stun the religious experts, right? His take on the scriptures was unprecedented. His power when he preached But I submit to you that wasn't the ultimate display of his divine might. Because he didn't just preach. He he did miracles. Jesus did miracles, true wonders that couldn't be explained in any way except that these were works done by God himself. He frees people from demons. I mean, he commands evil spirits to flee in a way that no ordinary person had ever done before. But you know what? Even that wasn't the ultimate display of divine might. Jesus could command the wind and the rain, the elements themselves, to submit to him. He would command storms to stop, and they obeyed him instantly. He superseded natural laws of gravity by walking on water and turning water into wine. But even that wasn't the ultimate display of his greatness, of his divine might. See, Jesus Christ, the mighty God, he could make the blind to see. He could make the lame to walk. He heals diseases of the blood. He heals diseases of the skin like leprosy. He even raises the dead. On three occasions, we were told that he raised someone who was D-E-A-D dead back to life. And yet I would submit to you that is not the ultimate display 
of his divine might. I mean, all of these things are really good. These are really impressive acts. Don't get me wrong. This is great. These signs and wonders, Jesus even said, they're, they're signs for the unbeliever, right? And, and these, these things made Jesus famous. People were coming from miles around to see these mighty works. But there was something else about Jesus that demonstrated his divine might more than all of these things, more than the miracles, more than his amazing the way he taught, more than the healings, more than the exorcisms. There was one demonstration of the kind of power and the kind of might that only someone who was God could pull off. Because think about it this way, if Jesus, if all Jesus did was do impressive miracles, then what on earth would have made anybody continue to follow his words and his ways after he left? I mean, it's, that's great as long as he's here. He's doing those things. Yeah, that's cool. But then when he left, I mean, the crowds would be wild, and then they'd go home, you know? Like if you go to a really good concert, like really pumps you up, it's really awesome. And then when it's done, you like go to Whataburger and you talk about it. But by the next day, you're not still living in the concert, right? right. It's kind of done. I mean, once Jesus had died and resurrected and went to heaven, why would anybody still be following this? Because after Jesus died, it turns out, and rose from the dead and gave his disciples that great commission, that great command, the church didn't die out. It exploded. Amen. So what's happening there? I mean, Christianity spread like wildfire after Jesus was gone. After Jesus was gone. It spread through the Roman Empire, no matter how, many, how much they tried to suppress it. And eventually it spread to every corner of this planet. So if the greatest sign of, that Jesus was mighty God were just found in his miracles, well then we might would expect this movement, this revolution, to kind of die out after he was gone. It might just be something we read about, that was really great for a time, and then it died out. The only other way you can imagine uh, such a massive growth of a new religion after the leader had left would be if it grew by force. If it grew by force. If it grew at the end of a sword. If, if, you know, if Jesus' followers had got together after he was gone and said, okay, well, you know, Jesus is gone, but if we band together uh, and we force village after village and then we force town after town and then city after city and country after country to follow our movement or else we'll kill them, this thing will grow. Which is basically the story of Islam, Right? It's another nation, uh, a religion that, that grew very quickly, but basically by coercion, if you, read the, if you read the history. This isn't the story of the Jesus movement at all. After the mighty, mighty son of God passes on his mission to his followers and he leaves the scene, his followers spread like wildfire, not by conquering land, but by, through being oppressed, being persecuted, by those who are in power. So something else, something else is happening here. And that something, that thing that made the, the Jesus movement grow and grow and grow, even as the Romans tried harder and harder to extinguish it, the mightiest of his works was ironically the most humiliating of the things that he did. 
the ultimate demonstration that Jesus was the Christ, that he was mighty God himself, was the God of the universe surrendering himself to death by crucifixion. I submit that is the mightiest of the acts of this God. And once again, the message and the methods of Jesus completely defy our expectations, right? We saw this last week, just as we saw, you know, his wonderful counsel, his wisdom, but it's completely opposite the wisdom of this world. It makes people, makes some people angry, makes some people really weirded out. At the same time, Jesus' idea of power is completely at odds with this world's idea of power. This mighty God doesn't arrive and conquer as the Romans were used to doing. This, this power that Jesus exercised was at its most godlike when he gave himself to be arrested, when he gave himself to be abused for political gain, when he gave himself to be killed. I'd submit that that was his most godlike demonstration of power. Because this message of the mighty God was shared most divinely through weakness. See, think about it. Throughout history, we've had a lot of religions. There's been a lot of gods and goddesses. The gods have always been defined by their might, haven't they? I mean, think of any of the gods you learned about, like in you know, Greek mythology class or something like that. They're all defined by their might. That's nothing new, right? Uh, and they've always been defined by the kind of power that humans have always lusted after. That makes sense because we create these gods in our image, right? Humans have always projected that kind of power that we lust after onto their gods. But here comes along the one true God in the flesh, and he contradicts everything human beings. In every corner of the globe, by the way, and in every century of human history, every single one of them, he contradicts everything that has been universally assumed about divine power. This mighty God arrives in Galilee and, and promises no military victory to his followers. <laughs> in fact, some of them were like, I'm out. <laughs> They left once they figured that out. He arrives in Galilee and he promises uh, no revenge on their enemies. And they're like, excuse me? What are we in this for? <laughs> he promises no financial glory. And they're like, that's what it's all about. That's why we're sticking this thing out, right? No, no, this Messiah shows up and he shows a godlike restraint a godlike love, a godlike humility by getting himself crucified out of love for the enemies who are crucifying him. And then he turns around and he promises his disciples that they too should be willing to suffer at the hands of their enemies out of love for those same enemies. I'm telling you, on paper, this is not a movement that should be growing. <laughs> This is not a movement everybody's like, yeah, right? I can tell in your faces right now, right? But this is the DNA that fuels the kingdom of God. This is why we're all sitting here today, because somebody did believe this. 
This is, the, this is this self-sacrificial love. It's in our blood because it was in the blood of Jesus. Amen. It is part of our DNA. Self-sacrificial love. It's the currency of the kingdom. It's why Jesus and the apostles warn us over and over and over and over not to chase the kind of power the pagans chase after. He warns us of this over and over. Not to make an idol of the kind of might that the world idolizes. I'm sure even Isaiah, when he said mighty God, he was probably thinking of some really great military, you know, victor. Because he's only human. Of course he did, right? Might makes right. That's what we were, you know, we just, we naturally believe that. Overthrow those enemies, conquer them by any means necessary. It doesn't matter. Just get that power. It's all that matters. But when Jesus shows up and he introduces to the world a kind of power that is it's so radical it, because it is a cross-shaped power. Jesus introduces a cross-shaped power. And here's what else is, is really mind-blowing about this. It wasn't a mistake that he got crucified. Right? I mean, that's central to, to what it means to be a Christian, is, not, is, to, is to know and understand. This wasn't like, oh, a flaw on the plan. Uh-oh. No, no. The cross is not only not a mistake, it is the perfect expression of this mighty God. The cross is the perfect expression. God did not come to make war on his enemies. Do you know what you call a God who has to make war on his enemies? Threatened. Right? Threatened. This is not a God who is threatened. Amen? Um, when I am sitting on the floor with that little girl right there, my, my, my little seven-year-old girl, and we are having fun, we are tickle-battling at it, we're going at it, I do not need at any point to stand over her and hold her down and vanquish her to make sure she remembers that I am her father. I don't got to do that. In fact, I would submit I am at my most dad-like when I lay back and she wins with a foot on my stomach and says, I beat you again, right? I'm at my most dad-like. I'm not threatened. So Paul says this over in 1 Corinthians. Let's see here. He says, for the message of the cross, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing, he's He's, he's talking about those who live by the sword and die by the sword. They're, they're lost. They're dying in their sins. And it's foolishness, foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. It's not like the power of God will still somehow make its way through in the spite of the cross. No, it is the power of God. Are you hearing this? I'm, I'm not making this up. It goes on, he goes on to say this. But we proclaim Christ crucified. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, in his day, when he's saying Jews and Gentiles there, basically, you can think of two camps there. The Jews kind of represent the religious community. So it's a stumbling block to, to the religious community. Sometimes I feel like this whole message makes me trip up. It trips me up in all my agendas, right? It is a stumbling block, right? And it's foolishness to the Gentiles. That's the secular community, that's the community of reason. 
they're looking at this going, this is dumb. You people are idiots, right? But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks. So what he's saying is God is pulling from both camps. God is, is drawing everyone. That's everyone, Jews and Greeks. He's talking about the whole world there. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the cross is the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. That's among the craziest things anybody's ever said, which is partly how I know that this is all divinely inspired. This is how I know we didn't make this thing up about Jesus, that he was God, because believe me, human beings would never make up this philosophy. We wouldn't. We've got a whole history of religion to look from. We have got thousands of religions to compare to and to look. We know what gods look like when human beings invent them. We take the kind of power that we lust after, which is coercive power, and, and the power to get our way, the power to impose our will on others, the power to win, the power to vanquish our enemies, the power that does favors for those who do favors for you, and the power who punishes those who don't. We like that kind of coercive power. We're drawn to that, right? Those kind of, those, that kind of power is, makes New York Times best-selling books, right? We like that. And Paul comes along and says, sorry, you got the wrong concept of God. Mm. The true power of God is God's willingness to suffer for his enemies. A God who's willing to, to enter into solidarity with our sin, with our judgment, and to bear it on himself. Are, are you understanding this is far beyond any kind of normal little pagan Zeus-like concept of power? That's the power of God on full display. The only way to change the world, Jesus knew the only way to change the world is, is to give yourself away, to invest in others. We even see that as a principle that is true in today's, some of today's great uh, inventors and business tycoons and things like that. The ones who are really successful, the people who make a big difference, you know, the most disruptive difference in the whole wide world are not the people who are like, I really want to make a billion dollars. They're the people who are like, I want to do something that changes people's lives, right? They're, they give themselves and they invest into the human race. Jesus understood this. We have to invest in others to have a life that's outwardly oriented, others focused, whether, you, whether you, you, a life where you notice people, where you see them and you love them and you're pouring yourself out to people. That is the essence of the kingdom. Amen. But it looks so foolish and stupid to the world, doesn't it? And it's such a stumbling block to religious people. I mean, what kind of God gets himself crucified? How is that mighty? Power and might are supposed to protect you from that kind of stuff, right? Not get you killed. But make no mistake, the cross looks foolish and weak when you're on the side of power and privilege. It, it looks foolish and weak. Because the truth is, if you have enough coercive power... If you had unlimited power, you can, if you have enough strength, you can pretty much get anybody to do anything or say anything you want them to say, right? And that, all that takes is leverage. But if that's what Jesus were all about, I'm telling you, getting things done through force rather than love, we would have nothing better to worship this morning than just another Zeus, 
another Baal, another Odin, Osiris, Allah. Only one time in history has the God of this universe come down to earth as a man and given his life for his own created beings. And that God is Jesus Christ. That God is Jesus Christ. I don't care how many guns you got, how many missiles, how many bullets, how big your army is, how many laws you pass, you cannot make a person love you. You can make them obey you, but you can't make them love you. You can't make a person love God. You can't make a person love other people or, or themselves. You can't change a person's heart, not by force. It's only the cross-shaped power of the mighty God that, that can get on the inside and change a sinner like me from the inside out. It's only the cross-shaped power of, a, of the mighty God who can change an enemy into a friend that can stop the cycle of violence going on in the world. It's only the cross-shaped power of God that can enable people to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable and care about people that aren't even on most people's radar screens. It's only the cross-shaped power of the mighty God that can get on the inside and melt the calluses of our heart and open our eyes to the beauty of people who are different than us, the differences between us and the uniqueness of people instead of just seeing people by labels and categories or the problems that they bring to the table. Only the love of God can do that. Only the cross-shaped power. You can pass a law that says people ought to do something, but nothing will empower them to do it until the love of God begins to get inside of them. Amen. Isn't that the truth? It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. It can make a hateful heart, make it loving. The power of God at work can take a racist heart and make it embracing. It can take a, 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 a fearful heart and make it courageous. It can take a faithless heart and make it into something faithful. It can take an arrogant heart and turn it into something humble. It can take a despairing heart and give it hope. Only the power of God can do that. Only the mightiest love of the mighty God himself that's revealed in the cross can bring about that kind of change. Jesus couldn't have come and done anything by force that would have changed any of our hearts today. Nothing. Amen. He would have done nothing but be the leader of another historical empire that we read about. Now, a question I often hear, you may have said this to yourself at some point in your life, is why don't we see more of the power of this mighty God in our lives? Why don't, we, why don't we experience it more than we do? Perhaps because we've been chasing the wrong kind of power. Perhaps because we have had a narrow view of power, or dare I say even a pagan view of power, an idolatrous view of power. See, nobody imagined the Messiah coming as a baby. Nobody, nobody imagined him being born in a dirty stable, laying in a manger for animals. No one thought that he would be a wandering rabbi, that he would be basically homeless, that he would stoop in the dust to wash other people's feet. Nobody pictured that as the great Messiah. Nobody pictured a Messiah that would embrace sinners and prostitutes 
and, and people, folks with leprosy, and that this Messiah would come and eventually die on a cross. What they thought, what they expected, was the mighty God Messiah would arrive with military power. They expected a conquering king. They expected, they imagined him ruling a kingdom of this world. They imagined a Messiah who would arrive in Jerusalem and announce, your suffering is over. You've suffered long enough. Time to live your best life right now. Your suffering is all done. Not a Savior who would come to serve others, to suffer with others, to give his life for his enemies, and then to tell his followers, now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Submit yourselves to one another as I have come to serve you. No one expected that. A Savior who would come and break bread with his disciples and say, do this in remembrance of me. You know, he wasn't just talking about the cracker and the juice. He was saying this. This what you see me doing, the way you see me living, the way you're going to see me dying, do this in my name. That's the kind of power that we, Jesus followers, are called to manifest in Jesus' name. The Christian historian Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Famous quote, the blood of the martyrs, and he was watching it with his own eyes. This was in the day when they were being fed to lions and burned on torches and things like that. Things like, I won't mention because we got kids in the room. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, we here in America are pretty blessed. On a normal day, we don't usually have to give our life uh, for our faith. But the word martyr, did you know it simply means to bear witness? The word martyr is a Greek word. It comes from the word to bear witness or to testify. It's the person in the court who would stand up and say, I can testify that what they're saying is true. That, would, that was a martyr. Now, it's come to you know, have a new definition today as one who gives their life for their faith, who's, who dies for their faith. But the truth is, whether we are called upon to face death or hardship or just make the hundred little sacrifices that we're, we have an opportunity to make every day, on behalf of others, we are called to bear witness. We are called to bear witness. We're called to surrender our wills, to surrender our agenda for something far greater. Because this is what manifests the kingdom of God. This is, in fact, what fuels the kingdom. I was thinking about that, the story, a beautiful little quick story in the Gospels when Jesus sees the widow woman. She's poor, she's old, and she puts the penny, just a penny, into the offering, and he tells everybody, stop, stop, stop. Do you see that? Do you see that? Guys, she has done more for the kingdom of God than all the money put in the offering today, right? Because the currency of the kingdom isn't money. It's the sacrifice behind the money. Yeah. That's the currency of the kingdom the willingness to bear witness on behalf of other people. And so we're manifesting the power of God today. You, every day of this week, you manifest the power of that mighty God when you carve out space in your time or in your budget to include others at Christmas time, right? Not just circling the wagons to kind of keep it to ourselves and our family and our, our best friends, but when we budget in blessing uh, the homeless, the fatherless, disadvantaged families in our community, 
poor third world villages in other countries like you've just done today. That's manifesting the cross-shaped love of the mighty God. When you carve time out of your busy schedules and come serve and volunteer in kids' world, right? So these kids sitting here right now who really wish they were in a kids' world class right now, serving them. When you carve out time to serve uh, in Rayford Hope on a Friday morning or in any of our other things that are going on, or when you call someone during the week who's sick and lonely. Sometimes that first step of sacrifice is just coming to church when it's easier to stay in bed. We're investing, when you're investing in other people, wherever you're bearing witness, you're testifying in the form of sacrifice. When you're testifying in the form of sacrifice, that is manifesting the power of the mighty God who came in the flesh. The mighty God. Sacrifice, I know it sounds difficult. It does. It sounds burdensome. It sounds painful. I know it can be. But you know what? A lot of us in this room and those watching by podcast or live stream, I'm telling you, they can testify that when you, you break through the, the initial hardship of that, yeah, you got to lose your life. But when you lose your life, you find it. Amen? Amen, Marlon, Larry, y'all could testify to that. When you lose your life, when you say, yes, Jesus, take it, you find your life. Amen. And that life is joy. That life is joy. Oh my gosh, to not be clinging to things, to not be clinging to our agenda, to be free with our stuff, to just be willing to let go of stuff. You find joy, you find the freedom in that. So let's pursue that. It's the essence of what we're called to do to ask this question every day, Lord, how can I bear witness of you for the sake of others today? How can I testify of you for the sake of others today? Help me to manifest your love and your power, true power today. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Hallelujah. Father God, heavenly Father, may the mighty God Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, may he lead us and guide us this week into bearing witness of you. Display through us, Lord, that true divine power, the power not to conquer and to grasp at stuff at any cost, but the cross-shaped power to love and serve each other and even our enemies as our Lord Jesus loved and served and surrendered his heavenly status to come down to the earth for our sakes. Lord, even when we were still your enemies, thank you for that love. Thank you, God, for filling us with your your spirit so that we can serve courageously, so we can stand courageously when we're called upon to do that, testify of you no matter what it is we face. Give us that courage, that peace the joy, the love in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and there's anything that we can pray with you about, there's a lot of different ways you can send us your prayer request online. We want to hear these prayer requests. We, we pray with you. As soon as we get them, we send it to our awesome prayer team and they go to battle with you. If you'd like somebody to pray with you face to face today, that in-person point of contact. Pastor Albert's going to be right here down the front. He would love to have that chance to pray with you about whatever it is going on in your life, whatever need you have. 
If you've never, never lived this life, this Jesus life before, and, you, and you're like, yeah, I want to know more about it, come down and talk to him. He'd, like to, he'd love to lead you in that next step, how to put you on that road to following Jesus. Amen. Um, listen, if you brought your tithes and offerings, we, we took our Jesus offering uh, the, earlier, but if you brought your tithes and offerings, you're welcome to put them in the uh, offering buckets or you can give them online. Uh, there's different ways to do that. If you didn't have a chance to give your Christmas offering for Jesus yet, and you're feeling just a, that tug on your heart, the Holy Spirit's telling you, hey, give something, to, give something towards this amazing cause. Uh, you can do it right now. You can fill out your envelope for that. Uh, just mark it for the uh, Christmas offering or the Jesus offering, uh, or you can do that online as well. All right. Amen. Amen. Oh, my friends, may the Heavenly Father grow your love for one another this week. May Jesus Christ teach you his ways and his words. May the Holy Spirit strengthen your hearts in holiness as you prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord this week. Grace and peace to you.